tremendous tonight. Man, that was super. You know, I was just uh, talking to Adam, our minister of music, who led the music tonight. He's got more sense than 99% of music ministers I know of. And I'll tell you why. He knows how to end the program. He ended it on a big note, on a big song like Amazing Grace. So thank you for bringing us to such a climax in worship like that. Tremendous job, and thank all of you. How many choirs did that represent up there? Two. Well, that's tremendous. Well, thank you, choir and orchestra, for being here tonight. And I want to thank especially Brother Charles for inviting me back again. I uh, usually don't get invited back again, so I appreciate that. You know, it's always exciting for me to be able to just come back to this great church and see how God is blessing you, blessing this pastor's leadership. You continue to grow and grow and grow every year, and God is using this church as a lighthouse, not only in East Texas, but throughout the world. So thank you, church, for your faithfulness in supporting the great leadership of your pastor and staff. So many of you I got to meet before the service tonight, you were uh, gracious enough to say that you watch or listen to our Pathway to Victory radio and television broadcast. Those who watch the TV broadcast know that we're doing a reprise, we're finishing it up uh, this month of our series, A Place Called Heaven. And I've been answering 10 of the most frequently asked questions about our eternal home in heaven. Questions like, will we know one another in heaven? Have you ever had people ask that? Maybe you've asked that. Maybe there are some people you don't want to know in heaven. I don't know, but people want to know. Will we know one another in heaven? Other people want to know, what will we do in heaven? I mean, is it going to be one 24-hour church service day after day? I might want to go to the other place if that's what it's going to be. I mean, is that what all we're going to do, or are we going to do something else in heaven besides worship? And the answer is yes, we're going to do other things besides worship. Uh, people want to know, do heaven, people in heaven know what's happening here on earth? Oh boy, I hope not, some people say. And we talk about why, in fact, yes, they do know what's happening on earth. But one question I answer in the series that people are most surprised by the answer is this question. Will heaven be the same for everyone? You know, a lot of people would answer that question, yes. They kind of see heaven as a form of sanctified socialism, where everybody gets the same little hut to live in and the same little plot of land, and it's the ultimate in democracy. Everybody's going to be treated the same in heaven, right? Wrong. Heaven is not going to be the same for every Christian. There are degrees of heaven. How do I know that? because of an event we're going to talk about tonight. The event we're going to talk about tonight is called the Judgment Seat of Christ. And what you're going to hear in the next 25 minutes, doesn't that give you a little hope right now that I said the next 25 minutes? That sounds like heaven. What you're going to hear seriously in the next 25 minutes could make an eternal difference in the kind of heaven you experience. Tonight, I want to do three things in the few moments we have together. I want to look at God's Word and, first of all, talk about the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, we're going to talk about the basis of the judgment seat of Christ. 
And finally, we're going to talk about the consequences of the judgment seat of Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you the background for this passage. In Acts chapter 18, we find the record of Paul's second missionary journey. And on that missionary journey, which some of us, even in this room, retraced this last summer together, uh, he eventually landed in the city of Corinth. And you'll remember Paul had 18 great months of ministry in Corinth. Hundreds of people were being saved. For 18 months, he saved and baptized people in Corinth. Everybody was excited except some of the Jews. They were threatened by what Paul was doing, and so they trumped up some charges against him to have him arrested, hopefully incarcerated, and stop the revival. And so in Acts 18, Acts 18 verse 12, we find these words. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, and they brought him before the judgment seat. That's the first time judgment seat is used in the New Testament. The Greek word is bema, judgment seat. Literally, the bema, it means a raised platform. When we were in Corinth this summer, a group of us went and stood in front of the bema, the judgment seat, where Galileo 2,000 years ago uh, sat. He was the one who was in charge of pronouncing judgments on those who were arrested. And so the Apostle Paul was brought and he stood right in front of Galileo who was seated on that judgment seat. And here is a man, think about it, who held Paul's life in his hands. He could decide whether he lived or he died. But when he was questioned, Paul did not flinch. He did not back down. He did not apologize for his ministry. He demonstrated great courage. What gave him the great courage in front of Galileo who was seated on that judgment seat? Because Paul knew that one day he was going to stand before another judge on another judgment seat who had much more power than Galileo. He knew one day he would stand before Jesus Christ himself and give an account of his life. And so Paul took that phrase, judgment seat, something the Corinthians knew because they saw it every day, and he wrote this word in 2 Corinthians to the Corinthians. In verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5, he said, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We're in heaven or earth. Our one goal is to be pleasing to God. Why? Here's the verse, verse 10. For we must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may be recompensed, that is, rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. That Greek word for bad, thalon, literally means worthless. Now, I want you to notice to whom Paul is talking. He's not talking to non-Christians. He doesn't say, for they must all appear before the judgment seat. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat. There is a judgment that is facing every one of us in this room tonight if we are a Christian. You know, some Christians say, oh, I'm so glad I'm saved. I never have to face the judgment of God. Wrong. We are going to face the judgment of God as Christians. Now, it's a different judgment than non-Christians face. 
If you die in this life without ever trusting in Christ as your Savior, you will stand before another judgment. We call it the great white throne judgment. And it's described in Revelation chapter 20. And the Bible says those who are not saved, they will stand at that judgment. And the Bible says the books were opened and the book was opened. And if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire and tormented there day and night forever and ever. That is the judgment that awaits non-Christians, the great white throne judgment. But you and I have another judgment that we're facing, not to determine whether we go to heaven or hell. That, that decision is made in this life, not in the next one, based on what we do with Jesus Christ. This is a judgment not of condemnation, but a judgment of evaluation. We are going to have our lives as Christians evaluated before God himself. You know, when I read this passage, I think about an experience I had a couple of years ago. I went to a very well-known clinic in Dallas to have an extensive physical, and um, part of the physical <laughs> exam, they had me take off all of my clothes and stand in front of this technician in my birthday suit. Please try to just wipe that out of your minds if you can for a moment. <laughs> and they took this little torture device. That's the only way I can describe it. And they started pinching my skin. And, and I said, what in the world are you doing? They said, well, we're measuring your body fat. We want to know your body fat. And I mean, I have never felt as exposed in my life standing there. All of a sudden, every chocolate chip cookie I'd ever eaten was on display. <laughs> every morning, I'd roll over and said, I don't think I'm going to run this morning. All of my works, or lack thereof, were evident before that technician. After they let me put my clothes back on, I went into the doctor's examining room. He had a little conference table, and I sat there. And he walked in in his white coat, and he had a little portfolio with him. And he said, now we have all of the results of your test. Let's talk about your health. And he commended me for the good things I was doing. He said, you know, it's good that you're eating bran flakes in the morning instead of, you know, swallowing that egg muffin every morning. That's a good thing. You know, your exercise, that's good. Uh, there are some good things you're doing. But then his smile turned to a frown. He said, there's some things we need to work on. You need to get your cholesterol down a few points. Uh, you need to watch your blood pressure. You need to shave a few pounds off. Now, he was evaluating my life, not because he wanted to destroy me, he wanted to help me. He was doing an honest evaluation of my life, my health, as it was. The Bible says one day you and I are going to stand before a judgment. The purpose is not to condemn us, but to commend us, to reward us according to what we have done, whether it be good or whether it be worthless. You know, a lot of Christians are mixed up on this whole thing. They think, well, good works, they're worthless. You know, we spend all of this time, especially as Baptists, talking about, oh, how worthless good works are. Listen, good works are absolutely worthless before you are saved. All your works can do before you're a Christian is condemn you. The Bible says our best, our righteousness is like a filthy rag before God. That's before we're saved. But after we're saved, our good works are invaluable. You remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Unfortunately, we Baptists stop short there at verse 9. We don't go on to verse 10. It says, for his workmanship created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. In fact, what did James say? Faith without works is a dead, worthless, non-existent faith. This judgment is a judgment not to determine heaven or hell, but to determine the kind of heaven that you and I are going to experience. And Paul says we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe this will help you understand it. Good works are absolutely worthless to secure your place in heaven, but they do determine your position in heaven. They do determine the kind of heaven you are going to experience. That's the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what is the basis for that judgment then? Exactly how is God going to judge me? Hold your place here and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11 through 13. This is so interesting to me. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 13. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Let me see if I can help you understand what Paul is saying here. I want you to imagine that you have a very wealthy father. In fact, your father is Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, the wealthiest man in America. Latest net worth, I read last week, $125 billion. Now imagine Jeff Bezos is your dad. And you have one sibling. And Jeff Bezos calls you and your sibling in and says, you know, I'm getting up there in age and I'm trying to determine what to do with my estate and I want to be sure that it's taken care of and goes to somebody who's going to use it wisely. So we're going to have a little contest with you and your sibling. And this is what we're going to do. I'm going to buy each of you five acres of land. And I am going to, on each of your pieces of property, I'm going to pour a concrete foundation of 10,000 square feet. And then I'm going to give each of you a check for $10 million. And in six months, I want to see which one of you can build on that foundation the most luxurious home possible. You've got six months to do it, and whoever ends up with the most luxurious home, I'm going to give two-thirds of my estate to. Well, you hear that from your dad, and you, you're so excited you can't even go to sleep that night thinking about those billions of dollars. So you immediately begin sketching out plans for what that house is going to look at, look like. The next morning, you get up and you start enlisting various architects to let them make their proposals. You talk to contractors to see uh, who can do the best job for the least amount of money so that you can pinch every penny and make it count. You go to work immediately, and you work, and you work, and you work, and by the end of the six months, you have built a home that rivals the Taj Mahal. 
I mean, it's unbelievable. Your sibling is not quite as industrious as you are. He thinks $10 million. Man, that is a fortune. I've got so many things I want to buy. I'd like to buy an airplane, and my wife and I want to go around to, uh, the world several times, and we've got this, and we've got all the time we need to build that house later on, but let's enjoy it. Let's live. The night before the contest is over, your sibling says, oh, yeah, there's a contest, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to build a house. The only problem is he has no money left. He has no time left. All he can do is put a grass hut on that 10,000 square foot concrete slab. The next morning, your dad, Jeff Bezos, comes to inspect yours and your sibling's work. He walks around your palace. He just grins from ear to ear, and he says to you, well done, well done. Then he goes to look at your sibling's house, <laughs> walks around that little grass hut, shakes his head and says, what a pity, what a pity. You say, what in the world does that story have to do with the judgment seat of Christ? That's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3 here. Look at verse 10, 11. He says, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The moment you trust in Christ as your Savior, Jesus Christ is given to you as the foundation of your life. He is the solid rock. He is the foundation. He is your assurance of heaven. He is God's gift to you. That's what God did for you. But once that foundation has been laid in your life as a Christian, you decide how you're going to build on that foundation. What kind of life are you going to build? What are you going to do with the time, the opportunities, the talents, the money that God has given you? Every one of us, every day, is building our life. Do you realize that? And the Bible says we're either building our lives with gold, silver, precious stones, that is, things that last for eternity, or we're building our lives like a grass hut, wood, hay, and straw. And one day the Father is going to judge our lives by the kind of lives that we have built. You say, Pastor, can you be more specific? Exactly what is he going to judge us by? Well, one criterion is the durability of our life. That's what he's talking about with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. Do our lives count for eternity or are they only temporary? Am I really building a life that is built around God's purpose or my purpose? Am I building a life with an eternal focus or with a temporal focus? By the way, could I ask you right now, what is the focus of your life? Is it on the eternal or is it on the temporary? Here are three questions to ask yourself. These are fun questions just to help you know what the focus of your life is. First of all, ask yourself, what do I think about most often? You know, when I'm driving in the car, when I'm stopped at the stoplight, when I'm sitting at the Woodland Hills Baptist Church on Monday night listening to Pastor Jeffers, what am I thinking about? Are they eternal things or are they temporary things? Secondly, what do I talk about most often? You can tell somebody's focus real quick. Are they talking about the stock market, politics, Friday night's football game? Is everything that comes out of their mouth about the temporal or the eternal? Finally, if somebody gave you a check for $100,000, what 
what would you do with that money? What I'm saying to you is what you think about, what you talk about, how you spend your money will help you determine real quickly if you're building your life with wood, hay, and straw or with gold, silver, and precious stones. The durability of our life, Paul says, is going to be one of the ways we are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. The second criterion is the motives of our life. You know, sometimes why we do what we do is just as important as what we do. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says that on that day at the judgment, God will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and he will disclose the motives of men's heart. Proverbs 16, 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs his motives. God will look at our motives for doing what we did. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor. If I'm just obeying God, if I'm doing good works in order to earn a reward in heaven, isn't that a selfish motive? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. In fact, that's the purest motivation of all. You know why? Because that demonstrates faith. Remember Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then in verse 6 says, for he who comes to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. You see, for you to obey God in this life, for you to sacrifice, to give up things you would naturally want to do or things you would naturally want to buy, to give up things in this life for the promise of a reward in the next life is the essence of what faith is. In fact, when you read through Hebrews 11, those men and women in fa of faith, you know what they all had in common? They all obeyed God, but none of them received the full reward of the, their obedience in this life. They were looking to another life to receive that reward. Remember Abraham? He was looking to a city whose architect and founder was God. That's what faith is. It's believing that God will one day reward us for our obedience. The Bible says at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged by our works, specifically the durability of our works, and secondly, the motives of our works. Finally, We've talked about the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to face it. We've talked about the basis of the judgment seat of Christ, our works, their durability, and their motives. Finally, what are the results of the judgment seat of Christ? This is so important. Have you ever heard people say, oh, I don't care anything about rewards. As long as I make it to heaven, I'll be happy. Have you heard people say that? Better think again. Better think again. Let's see what God says about that. God gives us two possible outcomes that we could experience at the judgment seat of Christ. One possibility is that of rewards. Look at verses 14 and 15, or verse 14. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. The Bible talks about rewards in heaven. Sometimes the Bible pictures those rewards as crowns in heaven. Now, I happen to think those crowns are symbolic of very tangible rewards. I'm not sure it's going to be any great reward to, you know, wear seven crowns piled up on your head for all eternity. I think those are symbolic of very specific rewards that are going to be awarded to some of us. 
What are those rewards? We don't have time to talk about them tonight. But for some people, there will be special privileges in heaven that other Christians won't have. You know, when our girls were little, we used to go to Disney World. And uh, I tell you, that can bankrupt you, I mean, immediately after a trip to Disney World. But if you've been to Disney World before, you know, for one price, you can get entrance into the park and you can see everything. You can ride everything as many times as you want to. Everybody who pays a price gets into the park. But if you want to pay a little bit extra, there's some special perks. There's a special gate you can enter to. You get to go in earlier before others do. And if you really, really want to pay through the nose, you can have breakfast with Mickey and Minnie. I mean, there's some extra perks to those who are willing to pay the extra price. Well, did you know the Bible says there are going to be special privileges in heaven? There's a special gate, a special access to the tree of life. There are all kinds of things, special privileges awaiting some people in heaven. For other people, the Bible talks about there's going to be special praise from the Lord. I mean, just think about this. Can you recall a time where an employer said to you, you're doing a great job. We couldn't make it in this organization without you. Or you can remember a time when your father or mother complimented you on something you had done. You know, the fact is you can live on that kind of praise for years, recalling what it was like when that employer, or more importantly, that parent praised you. Can you just imagine what it will be like to enter heaven one day and hear the words from the one with the nail-scarred hands saying to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That will be something that a few will hear the, have the privilege of hearing in heaven. Thirdly, there'll be special positions of authority for those who do well at this judgment. Matthew 5, 21 says that those who do well will be put in charge of many things. Some will rule over cities. Some will rule over nations. Some will rule over planets. Now, if that sounds more like hell than heaven to you because you don't like responsibility, God will have something else for you. But this life is a testing ground for what God is going to have us do in all eternity. I can't begin to imagine what these rewards actually are, but one thing I know for sure, whatever these rewards are, Paul says they are worth sacrificing for. They are worth working for. Some people will receive these vast rewards, but there's another possible outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't miss this, verse 15. It's the possibility of loss. Verse 15 says, if any man's work is burned up, that is, it's, your life is determined as having been worthless, temporary. If any man's work is burned up, he shall, underline this, suffer loss, even though he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. The Bible says, if your life fails God's judgment, his testing, you will experience real, measurable loss. May I go as far as to say there's going to be regret in heaven as you experience loss, as you see what could have been yours had you been more obedient to Christ in this life. You say, Pastor, I've been with you up to this point, but I can't go there. 
loss in heaven, regret, sorrow in heaven? Well, I thought heaven is supposed to be an inexplicable place of joy. How can there be sorrow and loss and regret at the same time there is joy in heaven? Those two can't coexist with one another, can they? Of course they can. You can experience joy and sorrow at the very same instant. Just imagine, for example, your insurance agent calls you one day and says, you know, I've been reviewing your homeowner's policy and I think you're underinsured. You need about $100,000 more of insurance to cover your home. And you say, well, I'll think about it. A few days later, you awaken in the middle of the night to the smell of smoke. You realize your house is on fire. Maybe you grab your mate. No, you grab your mate. And you grope through the darkness. You try to get your kids. You try to look for an exit out of the house. They're all blocked by the flames. And so you take a chair and you throw it through the plate glass window in the living room. You and your family members, you crawl out of that burning house onto the grass. And as you turn around, you look at your house going up in flames. Now, what is going to be your emotion at that moment? Certainly great joy that you escaped the flames and that your life has been saved. But don't you think at the very same time there's going to be a sense of regret as you think about what you should have done to prepare for that fire? The Bible says it's going to be the same at the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, everybody who makes it to heaven is going to be filled with overwhelming gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ from saving us from eternal damnation. But the Bible says there will be a sense of regret by some as they see what God had planned for them if only they had been more faithful. Now we've got to be careful here to overemphasize the regret aspect of heaven is to turn heaven into hell. But to not mention the possibility of regret is to make disobedience in this life inconsequential. What we do on earth reverberates in the halls of heaven forever. My friend Erwin Lutzer tells a great story about a, a beggar in India who was standing out on a dusty road with a bowl of rice in his hand, begging for more rice. He took three grains of rice and put it in that bowl and held it out there, hoping it would motivate people to give more rice. He stood there and stood there, and finally on the horizon, he saw a chariot racing toward him. It was a beautiful chariot. He knew it must belong to a wealthy Raja. And as the chariot got closer and closer, his hope began to build, and that chariot pulled up in front of the beggar and stopped and this wealthy Raja dressed in robes stood, stood down from the chariot and he said show me your bowl and so the man hopefully put out the bowl with the three grains of rice he said give me one of your grains of rice the beggar couldn't believe it why would a wealthy man ask a beggar for a grain of rice but he begrudgingly gave it to him give me another he demanded and so he reached in and gave another. Another, he demanded once again. This time the beggar was seething with bitterness and resentment and he allowed the Raja to pick out the final grain of rice. The wealthy man got back in his chariot and rode away. This man was bitter, almost brought to tears that this wealthy man would take the last grain of rice that he had. 
he happened to look down into that bowl and he noticed something glittering. He picked up one of those glittering particles and he noticed it was a nugget of gold. Then he looked down and there was a second nugget and a third nugget of gold. For every grain of rice the beggar gave the Raja, the wealthy man exchanged it for a nugget of gold. Now, Irwin makes this great point. He says, if we clutch our bowl of rice, we shall lose our reward. But if we are faithful and give God each grain, he gives us gold in return. And the gold God gives will survive the fire. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether it be good or worthless. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask nobody to leave right now, nobody to move. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let me just make it very clear, it is impossible to work your way into heaven. That is absolutely impossible. Salvation is a gift you receive from God. All you must do is tell God you are truly sorry for your sins. And he promises to wipe away your sins. Though they be as scarlet, he will make you as white as snow. Today, God's gift of salvation is not something you work for. It's something you receive. The Bible says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name. And tonight, we want to give you an opportunity to receive that gift of salvation. Tonight, if you would like to receive God's free gift of eternal life, I want to invite you to pray this prayer silently in your heart as I pray it out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know that I have failed you in many ways, but I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard tonight, that you loved me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, with every head still bowed, every eye still closed, tonight, if you prayed that prayer with me and you really meant it with all of your heart, I'm going to ask you to just briefly raise your hand wherever you are. Pastor, tonight, I prayed that prayer to trust in Christ. Would you? Yes. God bless you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Now, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask Brother Charles to come and stand at the front right now, if he would. I want all of us to stand where we are, quietly, heads still bowed. Stand together, all of us right now. And tonight, if you raised your hand, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want to ask you to just take a few steps and shake Brother Charles' hand and just say, I prayed the prayer. That's all you have to say. You say, well, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to come forward and shake the pastor's hand? Well, one reason, he wants to pray for you in this most important decision you'll ever make. 
But even more importantly, coming down to the front will help seal that commitment in your heart. In the days, the years ahead, if you ever begin to wonder whether or not you're a Christian, you can look back on this night, August 20th, 2018, when you walked down the aisle and took the pastor's hand and remember that you did everything the Bible says you must do to trust in Christ. So in just a moment, when we begin to sing, if you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to come right now and just shake the pastor's hand. Would you do it as we sing together?